Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we kick off our signature event of the season. We have our first episode in our Oscar Contender series. We will be going through our first batch of below-the-line contenders. So today we will be going in-depth into original song, original score, sound, film editing, and visual effects. I'm so excited to get back to these. So for anyone listening who's new to the pod or new to this series that we call the Oscar Contender Series, it's all about appreciating and breaking down the Oscar nominees of this season. So we will, through a few episodes, go through all of the categories, all 23 categories at the Oscars, and every film, including the nominees nominated for those films, and talk about the awards, what makes each nominee special, what we like about them, the technical side, especially today, into what goes into visual effects or editing. What about these movies got them in here? And I love breaking all of these down because it really shows me the craft behind the movies and what makes them so special and why we'll be talking about some of them five plus times, 10 plus times, 13 times throughout the next couple of weeks. And yeah, I think these categories today will give us a nice hint into what the Oscars will look like on March 10th. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things that we do because it gives me such a deep appreciation for filmmaking as an art. And it's fun, I think, every year to read off some of the same names year to year who maybe a lot of people don't know much about because they're sound mixers or they're visual effects artists. And one of the goals of our show from the beginning was to really spotlight people in the film industry who don't get the credit they deserve maybe. And yeah, it's always it's always fun. So let's get started with one of our Favorite categories, original song. So our guilds and precursors here, we have the Society of Composers and Lyricists, the Hollywood Music and Media Awards, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, and the Critics' Choice Awards. The Grammys are actually this weekend. So we'll see if any of our nominees take home wins there in key categories. But this year, What Was I Made For from Barbie won the Golden Globe. At the HMMAs, What Was I Made For from Barbie won the feature film category. Other category wins just don't overlap here, so we won't share those. And then I'm Just Ken won at the Critics' Choice Awards. At the Grammys, either What Was I Made For or I'm Just Ken could take home awards. And at the Society of Composers and Lyricists, that ceremony takes place on February 13th, but all of our nominees are there except for was Jage a song for my people, which was our surprise inclusion that I'm excited to talk about today. So before we get into these one by one, just a reminder, our nominees are The Fire Inside from Flame and Hot, I'm Just Ken from Barbie, It Never Went Away from American Symphony, Was Jage a song for my people from Killers of the Flower Moon, and What Was I Made For from Barbie. So starting off with a movie that only has one nomination at the Oscars, Flamin' Hot with The Fire Inside. Music and lyrics are by Diane Warren, one of our queens of the pod, and this is her 15th nomination. So the song sung by Becky G is an end credit song, 
I know you recently watched the movie. What did you think of this nominee and song use in the film? So I didn't really enjoy the movie very much, but I will say, like you said in your text to me, it is a movie about a chip. So I, you know, can't be too surprised. I don't know what I was expecting. It's a fine movie, but it definitely makes sense, I think, for a Diane Warren song nomination. I think that the song actually plays really well as an end credit song, and it's not a bad nomination. She's definitely had better nominations throughout her career. I mean, we can think about some signature ones like when she had I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, for instance. She's had huge nominations, but it's also not a bad nomination. Like, I think about, you know, when she had applause from Tell It Like a Woman or I'm Standing With You from Breakthrough. Remember when we had to watch Mm. Breakthrough? The Chrissy Metz (laughs) movie? Yeah. So, all things considered, Flame and Hot, not the worst movie I've had to watch for a Diane Warren Oscar nomination, but sadly not the best either. I think it's right in the middle. Yeah, I mentioned how I felt about the movie and the song use previously, but... I think it does fit really well. I feel similarly. I honestly don't mind this inclusion. It makes sense for her because we do get in the song category a lot of uplifting, inspirational songs and or movies where they come from. And that is exactly what this movie and song are. I loved the like Cheeto dust animation going (laughs) along with the credits. Like it's just so over the top, but... It plays well with this like flair that's happening in this Mm -hmm. moment. So yeah, it's totally fine. Her 15th nomination, we'll have to look for 16 for a potential win because I don't see that happening this time. Yeah. And I I did love the story that I read about how she was working in the same building as Eva Longoria at the time. They were just working on different projects and how she really wanted to work on this movie. And she ended up convincing Eva Longoria and she wrote the song after she showed her a cut of the movie. And she said she wanted it to be reflective of the American dream, which I think the song is. So good for you, Diane Warren. Next we have I'm Just Ken from Barbie, music and lyric by Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt. They are both previous winners for Shallow from A Star is Born. And Mark Ronson gave one of my favorite Oscar speeches in that moment. I think it's like, it's very short, very classy, really good. So watch that online. Uh, But this song plays during the climactic Ken dance showdown battle dream ballet. So this is a rare instance when a song nominee actually plays in the movie and not as an end credit song. So I think we do have to celebrate that. But what do you think of I'm Just Ken and how it works in the movie? I really like this inclusion. The song just feels like a parody in a way, which I think fits in the movie, especially in this Greta Gerwig humorous way. This is also part of the sequence that was shown for the sound bake-off. And I was really hoping that maybe it would get included there. It didn't. But I think this entire sequence in the movie is really fun, and this song just goes along with the similar energy that's happening with all of these Kens fighting. And we get to see like Ryan Gosling being sad in a way. Again, it's played with comedy the entire time, but I, I love his performance in this, and I'm excited to see Ryan Gosling sing at the Oscars, something I never thought we would ever say. 
Oh my God. I hope that comes to fruition because I remember when at the 2016 Oscars and I really wanted Ryan Gosling to be the one to sing that. I understand like they had a professional musician also in the cast, like why they didn't, but I am all for Ryan Gosling performing this at the Oscars. And that comedy that you mentioned, Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt cited that repeatedly as like a really high bar for them to try to clear because Noah and Greta, their comedy is at like such a smart high level and they wanted to really reach that and surpass that with this song. And one of the things that Mark Ronson said in an article I read with Variety that I loved was... He talked about this 80s power ballad style that works for this song. And one of the things that he said was those songs were at a time when masculine hetero music got to its most sensitive. So if you think about those kind of like hair bands of the 80s, these men just singing about their feelings, that's what he was trying to channel. And I think that works so perfectly with this comedy because... Some of my favorite lines from the song, like, am I not hot when I'm in my feelings? That's so funny. And it plays so perfectly with that time period that they're referencing and who Ken is as a character. And I also just love the chorus of my name's Ken and so am I. When the Ken say Mm -hmm. that, I just think it's really clever and funny. So I love this inclusion. Next up, we have It Never Went Away from American Symphony, music and lyric by John Batiste. So he's won before for Soul, and this is his second nomination. And Dan Wilson, this is his first nomination. So this is an end credits song. What did you like about the song, or what did you think of its placement in the film? So this is the classic end credits inspirational song from a documentary that makes it into this category year over year. It's a very simple piano ballad. I think that it is moving following the events of the documentary. So this is from American Symphony, the Matthew Heineman documentary about the life of John Batiste. And in that documentary, it also, it covers his creation of this symphony that he's playing at Carnegie Hall, but also this relationship that he has with his wife who has leukemia and the leukemia has come back. So it is this like very beautiful song that plays at the end, but it's kind of a a standard inclusion of the category by someone that the music branch clearly likes. John Batiste has won album of the year before at the Grammys. He won score, like you mentioned with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. So I think it's inclusion makes sense, but I don't find it to be a particularly inspired pick. In reading more about the song, um, I learned that John Batiste, he would write lullabies for his wife when she was in treatment. And I thought that that was really beautiful. And he talked about how that played into the creation of the song. But I wish that was actually a part of the film itself and not just kind of a story that connects to the song, because I think that would have been a really beautiful connection. Yeah, I think for who John Batiste is, he's this huge Grammy winner, which we see in the movie. He's a musician. He's really intimate with his work. I wish we would have seen more of that throughout the movie. And I think I was expecting more of the inception behind it and the creation, working with the band more. We see little snippets of this, but having that climactic, symphonic sequence at Carnegie Hall pretty much leading right into this song at the end of the movie feels a bit abrupt. And I think all of the sequences with Solika 
his wife and their battle being at the hospital and her going through chemo again and remission. And that story is horrific. And, you know, seeing her at the end and the final diagnosis is really heartbreaking. But I think the structure of the film is really unbalanced. And I struggled a lot through this movie. And you saying this song is pretty standard. It is. I like how the theme of the song mirrors the feeling throughout the doc a lot and his love for his wife. That really is what it comes down to. But apart from that, I wish Road to Freedom would have been here. Some other inclusions will mention our write-in votes at the end. But yeah, this is very standard, inspirational, moving. It's here. Our next nominee is Wajaje, a song for my people from Killers of the Flower Moon, music and lyric by Scott George. This is his first nomination. And as we mentioned last week on our Oscar nominations reactions podcast, that he is the first Native American man to be nominated in this category. So this song plays in the epilogue. It's an end credits song, yes, but it is far more emotional, I think, and moving than your typical end credits song that you get here. So what did you think of Wajaje and how it was used in the film? I think what's so special about the end of this movie, you know, we have that whole Marty sequence and the coda to the movie, and then you go into this song, which feels like we're almost wrapping back into the setting of the film itself. So I love how this placement really feels like this cyclical energy this uplifting ending that circles back from the beginning of the film where we have this burial of a ceremonial pipe. They're mourning the losses of their people. And then we we hear the story of the white people taking over of their community, taking their oil. And then at the end of the movie, this ceremony, it's about honoring their people. They wanted this uplifting, upbeat song. And the lyrics translate to them rejoicing for their survival and thanking God. So it really is such a touching and fitting ending for this film and leaves you on a high note. And I love how it is part of the film. And then it just slowly transitions into the credits. But you're left sitting there just kind of feeling this moment and the impact of this story you just witnessed. So I I really like that it showed up and that it was our surprise nominee in a sense. Yeah, me too. I think it's such a beautiful nominee. And I think that this has the potential to be the most moving moment at the Oscars. I mean, outside of maybe Lily, if she wins Best Actress, but this performance, I think, could really be incredible because it's performed by Osage tribal singers in the film. And I feel like that would just be really amazing to see at the Oscars. And the interest for this song came from Scorsese. He, Leo, and Lily went to the ceremonial dances that the Osage have in June every year. And they loved the energy and the movement and wanted to create something similar for the end of Killers of the Flower Moon. And in talking about this, Scott George, he said, our music helps define us, heals and strengthens us and allows us to maintain our way of life in a world that no longer resembles the era our ancestors came from. And I thought that was just a really beautiful way to describe the song. It's really, I think, just this beautiful anthem of resilience and speaks to everything that happened in the film before and where they are now. 
And our final nominee is What Was I Made For from Barbie, music and lyrics by Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell. They both previously won for No Time to Die. So this shows up in another climactic sequence in the film, but this is with Barbie and her conversation with Ruth at the very end of the film. So what do you think of this song and its inclusion? I think this song is so beautiful. And Greta, when she pitched it to Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, she pitched it to them as Barbie's heart song. And I think that is just such a beautiful way to describe it. And Billie Eilish says that everything in the song has a double meaning. And she started noticing that kind of as she was writing it, that she was just singing this song that also connected to her and how she was feeling in her life and how that's kind of the beauty of Barbie is that when you watch it and when you watch the scene, which is this montage that makes me cry every time, it's kind of impossible to separate yourself and your own experiences from that, which is the Greta magic. So I feel like she and Phineas tapped into that perfectly. And it is just such a beautiful song and plays so well over that montage. I totally agree. I love this song. And it was just another moment in the film that I sobbed during, you know, we see Barbie, Margot Robbie, and we basically go inside her into her mind. And we see this montage of moms and women that have inspired all of us. And it's just so touching. It's the perfect way to end the film you know, really before the epilogue of Barbie. And yeah, I love it. I I can't fault it in any way. It makes you feel it's supposed to do that. And it mirrors the purpose of the film perfectly. Now we're going to get into our wrap up questions for the category. What would your write in vote be? My write in vote comes from a film that wasn't nominated, which is devastating. But it's the song Live That Way Forever from The Iron Claw. This song in the film felt like some 80s rock anthem that was around. And then looking for the song, it was nowhere to be found. Viewers of the film, they were like Reddit threads looking for this song and realizing it was written for the film just blew my mind. So when it finally came out, I've been listening to it nonstop. It's a beautiful song, beautiful film. And again, like Barbie mirrors that feeling and some of those heartbreaking moments so vividly. I highly recommend this movie if you haven't seen it or find the song wherever you listen to music because you will love it. Yeah, so when when this movie ended, I thought, is there a Rush song I haven't heard before? <laughs> because the singer's voice sounds just like Getty Lee in a way that like Greta Van Fleet tries to sound like Led Zeppelin. This emulated Rush fully. I was shocked. <laughs> And it is a really good song. It accesses the type of music that the brothers were listening to. And the lyrics are really perfect for this story of the Von Eriks. So this is a great pick. So I have two write-in votes. My first one is my favorite song from Barbie, which was also one of my most listened to songs of 2023 on Spotify Wrapped. And that is Dance the Night from Dula Peep, aka Dua Lipa. Mm -hmm soon-to-be star of Argyle. And my other choice is the superior Diane Warren song, Gonna Be You, from 80 for Brady. We really missed out on the opportunity to have Dolly Parton, Belinda Carlisle, Cindy Lauper, Gloria Stefan, and Debbie Harry 
perform together at the Oscars. So that's my right. Those are my write in votes. There's going to have to be a book club three where Mary Steenburgen writes it. That's probably oh the God, way it's going to yes. happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do you think should win? It's hard because in discussing the songs, I feel like I would be really excited for a Wajaje win. I think that would be a really cool moment at the Oscars. But if I'm going strictly by the song itself and how it's used in the movie, I'm going to go with What Was I Made For from Barbie. I feel like it's executed perfectly. I love how Billie Eilish's voice sounds in it. And I, yeah, I just, I, that I can't get over how it works in that montage and that entire scene. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. What about you? I agree. I also think this should win. Most days at work, this will play over the radio. And whenever I hear it, I get so excited. And that's not really common for Oscar songs to play on the radio. But even though this song is sad, it brings back those memories and feelings of watching Barbie. And that's what I love so much. So yes, Billie Eilish and Phineas have won before. I think they should win their second Oscars. So next up, we have original score. Similar precursors and guilds here. We have the Society of Composers and Lyricists, the Hollywood Music and Media Awards, the Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, BAFTA, and the Grammys. Amongst our winners, we had Killers of the Flower Moon win feature film at the HMMAs, and Oppenheimer won at the Golden Globes. And then with our Grammys we mentioned are coming up soon. The nominees include Oppenheimer and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny amongst our Oscar nominees. And then at the SCL, the nominees include American Fiction, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer. So in order, our Oscar nominees for original score are American Fiction, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. So our first nominee is Laura Karpman for American Fiction. This is her first nomination. And what did you think of this score and how it's used in the movie? What I like about all of the nominees is that they're pretty unique in what they're doing or the type of music that they're using. And here, Laura uses this jazzy style emulating Thelonious Monk, the musician. So I think this correlates really well with the Thelonious Monk character played by Jeffrey Wright and the duality that his character struggles with, with being this really prolific author, but also substituting for this other author that he really despises being. So I think jazz is actually the perfect medium to show that internal conflict. And also in interviews, she talked about how the music transforms throughout the score you know, it starts pretty wistful. You hear some of that melancholy in his theme, the monk theme, and you start to have this family dynamic. It transforms into more bossa nova, having these edgier and more fun moments along the way. So what did you think of this score? I think, you know, when we were making predictions and reviewing the nominations, We thought of this one as a surprise, but then I remembered that when I saw American Fiction, the score did really stand out to me as one of the key elements in the film. And I think part of that, of what Laura Cartman does, is she thinks about the tone of the movie and how that's changing constantly. 
and going from this, you know, family drama as they're, you know, thinking about finding their mom and assisted living facility to these more comedic moments, more satirical moments. And I think that she, she works with that really well. And I, I like the jazzy quality of the score. I also like how at the end of the film, she plays with those different themes She creates one theme to go along with each ending. She's playing with existing scores almost in genre conventions that you'll find in the types Mm -hmm. of films that he's proposing. So I thought that was really fun. And in listening back to the score, this is a really easy score to just throw on in the background while you're working too. So I always appreciate that from the nominees. Did you have a favorite track from the score? I do like the Monk score. It's called Family Is, Monk Is. And there are actually a couple notes in the beginning that I played over and over and over because it sounded so familiar. And it reminded me of the track Hallelujah Junction from the Call Me By Your Name soundtrack. And I love that soundtrack. Oh. So it it's these like playful piano notes in the very beginning. If you hear it, you'll understand. But Again, I think that plays into the playfulness of this character and what he's doing with his writing. What about you? Did you have a favorite track? That is so true. Now I can hear that. I remember that part in Call Me By Your Name. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In that comparison. That's really good. Um, My favorite track is called High Lorraine. Lorraine is one of my favorite characters in the movie. She works for them and then she ends up getting married to Maynard and she's just this like... She's just this really sweet, funny character, and I feel like this track really emulates her. It's very bright, and I I really like it, so I would say that one. So next we have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, composed by the famous John Williams. So he has five wins, and this is his 54th nomination. We mentioned on our last episode how monumental this is and the record that he broke that he previously had himself. So, you know, good for John Williams. What did you think of this score? Honestly, I do think it's really fun. And part of that is because he does play with the Indiana Jones theme music quite a bit throughout. So I really think it's just my nostalgia creeping in as a fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And those movies that I grew up with, it's like there's something about hearing classic John Williams as a movie fan that just makes you excited. It's like when you hear Star Wars, when you hear Jaws, when you hear Harry Potter, Home Alone, like there's just something that hits your heart in a way that a lot of other composers can't do. So is this nomination particularly inspired No, like would I have rather seen other composers here with more inventive scores? Absolutely. But I think it's funny that he was initially just going to compose a few themes for the movie and let someone else, you know, take a crack at the score. And he ended up just doing the entire thing. It's kind of honestly relatable to (laughs) how I work. I'll just be like, I'll just do a little bit and then I end up doing the whole thing. Yes, intense group project vibes. (laughs) Um, I also read this, which I thought was so very John Williams and speaks to his power as a composer, but there will be a home entertainment release of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny that has another cut of the film that takes away all of the dialogue and just has the John Williams score Mm -hmm. playing. (laughs) 
which honestly, take away that dialogue. That's fine. <laughs> I think I would prefer that cut. I am very interested by this. I saw this as well. And John Williams spoke about, you know, Harrison Ford having this twinkle in his eye. So I'm actually really intrigued to have the action play almost like a silent film and to watch these people act and see how their physicality plays with the music itself. Because, yeah, I think John Williams is a genius. Everything he's created, you mentioned so many great ones that honestly I heard in the score itself too like you hear a little bit of harry potter in there and your mind goes back to the original series from spielberg and that's something williams did with the music too is he put all these motifs in from the previous films so i think it really works i did like listening to it individually versus having listened to it in the movie because i felt much more down on the film itself. But listening back, I'm like, I could study to this, read to this, put it on, and it is actually pretty great. And another funny John Williams moment, you know, he's kind of proved this just by being here, but this was supposed to be his last score, and he's already retracted that statement. So he's giving us some Miyazaki in there too, which we love another composer that... (laughs) I will mention in a few minutes. (laughs) So did you have a favorite track in the score? I picked New York 1969, mostly because it has the energy of the previous Indiana Jones films and incorporates the original theme, but in a new, in a fun new way. So I selected that one and it's from the opening of the movie, which I don't need to get into that. (laughs) The scene itself I don't love, but the track I really like. I like it too, actually, because it has a lot of that adventure and the original Indiana Jones theme, but it also mixes with these new sounds that he's adding for this movie alone. But my choice would be for Helena's theme, Helena being the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character. It's a bit more romantic and wistful, but I think that's part of what Indiana Jones is. It's these romance adventure films and even if she's not a romantic interest or partner in a way it's that character and that's something that we have in every indiana jones movie so i like how this feels like the quintessential john williams song next we have killers of the flower moon scored by robbie robertson who sadly passed away last august this is his first ever oscar nomination and It's crazy because he collaborated with Scorsese so much throughout his career. He worked with him as, you know, a composer, as a music supervisor, as a producer on films like The King of Comedy, The Color of Money, Casino, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, the list goes on and on. And he also was a member of the iconic band, The Band. And for anyone listening, if you have not seen the Scorsese documentary, The Last Waltz, it's fabulous. It's a key Scorsese film, I think. And yeah, I'm so, so happy that he was nominated for this score. What do you think of this score? I really like the score. It feels like another character in the film, and it really feels like that setting that we're in. I liked reading that Robbie Robertson has Native American roots, so he could channel that into the music and what 
Marty and the team and the Osage people are really putting into the energy of the film itself. So you have these Western flavors of period folk music and blues and guitar, and it gives us like really percussive thumping throughout the movie. And that's really what I love. And just thinking back to it or the movie in general, you hear that and you feel that in your body. And that's really the energy that Scorsese wanted to bring. And and I think it leaves a really indelible mark on you as a viewer. What did you think? I completely agree. And it's interesting because of all of the great directors, Scorsese isn't a filmmaker I think of when I think of great collaborations with composers. Like his films aren't score heavy. So it, in a way, what's really cool about this score is that in conversations with Robbie Robertson, he told him, I don't want movie music. And Mm -hmm. Robertson's reply to that was, well, if it's in a movie, it's movie music. So (laughs) like that's that I think speaks to their relationship, what Scorsese's looking for in terms of music in his films. And I think this is just seamless. It, like you said, is another character in the film. It is really delicate and dark at the same time and really speaks to what's going on in the film. I think it is an absolutely remarkable achievement when it comes to score and it incorporates that sound that he found with the band years ago and really I think when you think about that being someone's final project like their final work that is just so so beautiful and it's such a great legacy for him to leave behind did you have a favorite track from the score my favorite track is Osage Oil Boom. This is a bop in the same way that Proven Lands from There Will Be Blood is a bop. I love it. I think it's great. And anytime it comes on and I'm listening to the score, it's I, I just stop what I'm doing and fully <laughs> pay attention to this. So that's my favorite track. This is also my favorite. I ended up listening to this after I saw the movie and then in multiple Spotify mixes there would just be this entire score because I listen to that song so much. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'll be like at work, you know, with something on and it'll come to the Robertson score. And I'm like, um, we can skip. That's fine. <laughs> but <laughs> everything I mentioned about liking the score is in this one song itself. And yeah, it just captures so much of the setting and the film so well. So next we have Oppenheimer, score by Ludwig Göransson. He has one win, and this is his third nomination. What did you think of his score? I love this score. This is another one I listen to frequently. I really love the violin, just as an instrument in general, how it sounds, and I specifically love its use here in the movie. And I think that one of the things that Göransson does so well with this score is he plays with the idea of Oppenheimer being this scientific genius, what that means, how it sounds, what it looks like. And I feel like the way that he and Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan think of that idea and all collaborate on it is really, I mean, for lack of a better word, just so cool when you're watching the movie and you just see it come to fruition. And one of the things that he talked about was how, using the violin, he could play with so many different emotions that Oppenheimer 
was experiencing and how you can go in and out of all these emotions by playing with the violin in particular, you know, pressing down the bow on it heavily, changing the speed. You can, just by playing with that one instrument, you can say so much. And I love so many tracks from this score. It was really, really hard to pick one. I love Can You Hear the Music. I feel like that is just it's great. I think it's a little cheesy how it's introduced, but I really don't mind. But my favorite track overall is Destroyer of Worlds, which comes at the very end. And it is so ominous and beautiful and really incorporates everything that we've heard so far from the movie, but in a new way. And it acts as this summation to everything that Oppenheimer is feeling. So I would go with that for my favorite track. But yeah, I love the score. I also think it's wonderful. I think it's really different from the score that he won for from Black Panther. But it really does give us all of those similar things we've seen with Nolan and his other films, too. And they recorded all of this live. You know, they did it in sections at first, but it just didn't sound as authentic. So they had such a difficulty trying to record this with these tempo changes in the music. So they go from 180 beats per minute to 350. So they double the tempo within two minutes. That is insane. So the musicians are calculating this in their head, and he said it led to this friction in the music. And I think not only the tempo change, but the sound and the orchestral sound of these violins give you this feeling for these atoms that we're talking about in the movie. So again, I think this is a great auditory companion to the visuals we're seeing on screen, whether it be the visual effects and, you know, those particles we see or the action, the violence, the internal conflict with Oppenheimer himself and the drama unfolding. My track that I really love is Can You Hear the Music? I... I think throughout just my choices in general, like these lighter songs sometimes, but also the more dramatic ones. And the song ends in such a big way. I remember this playing during the movie and just like tears streaming down my face because it was so beautiful. It's so pretty. That's like how I felt about Destroyer of Worlds when that plays near the end and you see Little Einstein it's just mm-hmm. it's really it's really moving like that just happens sometimes when you watch you watch films and music in a movie can really do that and the song is less than two minutes long i wanted it to go on for like 15 minutes because it's that beautiful i am so envious of every single person who got to go to that live oh, orchestra yeah. mm-hmm. screening in la i need them to tour i want them to come to yeah. new york mm-hmm Our last nominee that we have is Poor Things. This was composed by Jerskin Fendrix, and this is his first nomination. What do you think of the Poor Things score? I think in terms of the scores we have, it's the most different just listening to it on its own. It was interesting to see that this is Lanthimos' first film to have a score. In his other movies, he's used other source music. And reading about how they worked on it and how Fendrix composed it is that he made it without seeing any footage of the film. Lanthimos really wanted the music to add another layer, even if it was contradictory and especially to feel unexpected. And I think you really do feel that there's this vulnerability that 
Fendrix wanted to put into it and that Lanthimos had liked with some of his other work that he had heard, but he also wanted to show not only Bella and how she was feeling, that she really couldn't articulate herself in this world, but then throughout her travels, she transforms, and so does the music and the complexity that we hear. So I really do like how it's this struggle. Again, I think that can be difficult for certain viewers, and I think listening back, it makes it a bit harder to do on its own versus something more traditional or conventional like a John Williams score that we've talked about. My favorite track from the film, I had a couple that I liked sections of, but the finale and the end credit song, I think just ends on this really upbeat moment. And, you know, with the ending of the film, if you've seen it, it feels like this explosion of emotions and feelings and color. And I think it's a great way to end the movie. So what did you think of the score and any favorite tracks you might have had? Yeah. When you said certain people, like this isn't for certain people. It's me. I am certain people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I don't like the score. I just will never listen to it on its own. It's just not one that I'm going to put on in the background when I'm working like I would with Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon, for instance, or some of our other scores that weren't nominated. But I really did enjoy, I think, learning more about it. And the fact, again, like you mentioned, that this was Lanthimos's first score, too. And I really think a lot of power in the score comes from the fact that it was Lanthimos's first time doing a score and Fendrix's first time doing a score, because I think that freed Fendrix a bit to be able to do what he wanted and remove some possible constraints or maybe preconceived notions of how the project would work for both of them. So I, f- I think that's that works. And I do think that this score is the perfect score for the movie. It makes sense, absolutely, like thematically, the weird way it sounds, how sometimes you sound like you're underwater or it's you know, hear voices in the background of it. I do like how it plays with the gothic grotesque themes of the movie and some of the adventure as well. It's just, again, not one that I'm going to just put on and listen to for fun. My favorite track from the movie is I Just Hope She's Alright. And this is a track that I think combines everything that the score does best. You have this kind of odd feminine energy and this voice to it with this zany, adventurous spirit at the same time and how the music sounds so i would pick that track so wrapping up the category what would your write-in vote be here my write-in vote would be one of my most listened to scores for the year which is anthony willis's score for saltburn i know there are better options here and you've selected one of them so i didn't want to step on that one but if i'm being honest like this is the score that i remember when i saw the movie thinking I can't wait for that score to come out. I would listen to that all the time. In particular, the track Felix Amica, and Amica is the etymology there, is Latin for friend. So there's a lot of, I don't know, I like the title and the way that the song sounds in the movie and how it accompanies that montage. And I love the the darker themes at play in the movie too. There are a number of, of really good tracks in it that I like. So I would pick the Saltburn score. What about you? My score is one that I've talked about all season. It's Joe Hisaichi's score for The Boy and the Heron. 
I have and I will listen to the score on its own forever. I think it's beautiful, it's complex, it's adventurous, and it's also so moving. I think it's one of his best, but even to say that, his collaborations with Miyazaki create these themes that when you hear them, you know instantly what they're from. And to have done that five to ten times in your life, let alone creating like one big movie that's popular for so many people, is so unheard of. And I'm sad he didn't make it, but I think still his impact is really special and important. And yeah, I wish it would have shown up. I love that score. There were so many great scores this year. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, The Zone of Interest, Barbie even. I mean, I I don't know. It's a it was a really good year for score. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think should win? I'm going to say Killers or Oppenheimer. I think with Killers, it's very unique. I love the energy and that Robertson, you know, the whole like <laughs> not being movie music thing, he didn't want it to feel manipulative. And it really isn't. It's its own thing. But then with Oppenheimer, you have that Nolan sweeping sensation that he has, that inspiration to his movies. And it even feels like you're playing with time in a sense that he always does. So if this counts, you know, as a win for Tenet, I would love to see his (laughs) name show up. (laughs) so different from this but i think even that in itself you know how he's created these two completely different scores bravo it's so funny because all of my really stressful film scores that i listen to are from nolan movies like i remember i used to listen to (laughs) dream collapsing from inception i'd Mm -hmm. be like doing homework and suddenly sweating like what's going on (laughs) but yeah so it's like (laughs) inception tenet different composers now oppenheimer Yeah, it's hard to pick one. I'm kind of in the same boat as you because I think that as a score, if I'm just, if I just want to put on the vinyl, right? Like I have the Oppenheimer score vinyl and it just sounds amazing to listen to. But when I think about how the score is used in the movie, I prefer the way that Robertson and Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker, of course, her editor, use that score. Like I think that that, it's a greater use of film score. Because I do remember when watching Oppenheimer, I was like, why is this score so loud? I just want to hear these characters talk for a minute. But I also know that that's just kind of what you expect in certain Nolan movies. And but I wanted to listen to the score at the same time. So it's just that's part of the Nolan movie going experience, I think. So, yeah, I think I would give the edge to Killers just in terms of how it's used in the movie. Okay, next up we have Best Sound. Our guilds here, we have the Motion Picture Sound Editors or MPSE Golden Reel Awards. Those will be held on March 3rd and the Cinema Audio Society Awards. Those will be on March 2nd. Our overlap here at the Cinema Audio Society, we had Maestro and Oppenheimer. And at the Motion Picture Sound Editors, we had Maestro with two category nominations, Oppenheimer with three and The Zone of Interest with one. Our nominees here, we have The Creator, Maestro, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part One, Oppenheimer, and The Zone of Interest. Starting off with The Creator, our team here includes Ian Voigt. This is his first nomination. Eric Adal. This is his fourth nomination. 
Ethan Vanderin, who has two wins. This is his seventh nomination. Tom Ozanich, this is his third nomination. And Dean Zupancic, this is his fourth nomination. I think with their creator, you know, the film had an $80 million budget. I think with what they had to work with, they accomplished some really exciting things. We'll talk about them later in visual effects, but I think you know, that collaboration with the sound team was really important. Creating these beams, not using green screens, being on location. I liked how one of the members of the sound team was driving and went off the median, liked the sound of that so much that they pulled over, recorded that sound, and used it as the tanks that are used in the film. So it's really cool how people can be inventive with creating new sounds, using them in a way that we really wouldn't expect. I love learning facts about Foley. Like, I still remember when we interviewed the sound team for Greyhound, that Tom Hanks movie, and they talked about the dog food can being what they used in Terminator, (laughs) in the Terminator movies, and I just thought that was mind-blowing. So I I love hearing about, like, certain sounds Mm. that they use And I mean, De Palma's Blowout is one of my favorite movies ever. So I just, I love how sound designers and engineers go out and find sounds and bring those into their movies. The creator is an interesting one because as a film itself, I wasn't very high on it. You know, it's just not really my type of film, but I do think that the sound work and the visual effects, the two categories where it was nominated are deserving categories for sure. Also, in thinking about like the sounds that they found, and I like how they went to different cities like Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City to actually collect the sounds of those cities and then bring those into the cities of New Asia in the movie and like layering those sounds with additional recordings of technology to create this new environment. There's one thing with the sound that I'm very mixed on there it's a great moment in terms of sound work but i just am begging people to stop using radiohead songs in the, your movies it's just i think we've just hit the limit here i love radiohead one of my favorite bands ever but everything in its right place i mean how how many times are we going to hear this song used mm-hmm. in a movie like this but I did like the way that they played with the pulsing sound of that aircraft along with the song. I felt like that was actually really creative. So if you're going to use a song, at least, I guess, like play with it in a new way and incorporate the technology and the environment that you're in to do so. But I just maybe wish it wasn't that song. This is not the last movie we'll talk about with the Radiohead song. (laughs) <laughs> in another category, <laughs> one that is also overplayed. But yeah, I think the explosions of the film also reminded me of Oppenheimer. You know, you have that pause and then this big brash sound of the actual explosion. So I think that comparison or, you know, making me think of that other movie explains its presence here in this category. Our next nominee is Maestro. The team here, we have Stephen A. Morrow. This is his fourth nomination. Richard King. This is his seventh nomination and his fourth win. Jason Reuter. This is his second nomination. And then we have some repeats here. We have Tom Ozanich. This is his 
fourth nom and Dean Zupancic. This is his fifth nomination. So for those two, they scored their fourth and fifth nominations this year. (laughs) But I think the sound work in Maestro is really beautiful. What did you think of it and how this movie sounds? The movie itself centers itself around music and sound. So this was really important for them to get right. And in working with Bradley Cooper, who loves to pretty much only record live, this was the biggest task that they had. So their sound mixing, real atmospheric sound, you know, with parties or with the cathedral symphony performance and not just recording certain parts of it and then adding background noise or music into it afterwards. So I think the sound that we hear and the experience that we have as viewers is just so much more authentic and feels like you're there in that space with them, which I think is really special, especially for a biopic or something where, you know, during the Ely Cathedral sequence, that camera is sweeping over them. You really do feel like you are right there sitting in the orchestra with the musicians. Yeah, this sound work in this movie is part of the reason why I've recommended, if you can, to see this in a theater. Because at home, I just don't think it plays the same way. And I saw this at New York Film Festival at David Geffen Hall. They had like redone the technology in the theater to have this screening there. And it just sounded glorious specifically the Ely Cathedral scene and what that team did to make that happen, capturing that live. That is such an enormous undertaking. And they were so worried about using that space too, because of, you know, how old it is. It has these caverns. And if you think about the height of the space and the stone, and just when I was thinking about this, I thought of how they used the sound in Mank actually when they would record it and play it back in those big cavernous halls, like when we had those scenes at Hearst mansion. Mm -hmm. And I, so I thought of that and another, another movie that I like that a lot of other people are hard on a little connection there. But um, one of the other things with Maestro that I found really interesting is that Bradley Cooper really wanted to capture that feel of having crosstalk among his actors When I first heard this, I initially, of course, thought of Robert Altman, but his inspiration was Jason Reitman and his movie The Front Runner, which I thought was kind of an odd Mm. reference point. But he apparently, in this article from A-Frame through the Academy, talked about the sound team there, talked about how he liked all of the overlapping dialogue. So they mic'd everyone and just recorded all of them talking and they would do that for the party scenes so in those scenes like that party in new york that they have when the film jumps forward to color they're capturing everyone's speech in that so i think that's Mm -hmm. that's really cool too and also really difficult to pull off our next nominee is mission impossible dead reckoning part one the team here includes chris monroe he has two wins and this is his fifth nomination James H. Mather, he has one win, and this is his third nomination. Chris Burden, he has one win, this is his third nomination. And Mark Taylor, who has two wins, and this is his sixth nomination. What did you think of the sound work in Mission Impossible? 
Well, first, we have to celebrate that this is the first nomination for the Mission Impossible franchise, one of the best action franchises I think that we have. And I think that the sound work is really strong in this movie. I really loved Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I thought it was a really, really fun movie. The comedy is honestly underrated. It's so silly at times. And I just, it reminded me of like those old action movies or spy movies from like the 60s or 70s where it's all just ultimately like the characters take themselves and their situations so seriously, but ultimately they're, that's what makes it comical. Mm -hmm. So I really liked the movie and I felt like the sound work in it, along with the visual effects and a number of other technical components uh, were really, really good. And one of my favorite things from learning about the sound work is how Tom Cruise was obsessed with the sound of footsteps, more specifically not wanting the sound of his footsteps Mm -hmm. to be included in the scenes when he's running. He wanted the other sounds to be much more heightened. He wanted to hear the score and he would say to the sound team, the audience is seeing me run. They don't need to hear me run. So again, I just thought it was funny how he had input into how this movie was supposed to sound. But I think that the the strength really in this in the sound work for me is in the scene when Ethan and Grace, the Haley Atwell character, are driving in that tiny little Fiat and they're like handcuffed together. And we can just hear all of the city sounds. We can hear like the other cars. We can hear those old cobblestone streets. And again, like I mentioned with those kind of older 60s or 70s movies, it felt like a cartoon to me at times too. And I think that the sound work there really plays into it. You can hear it. It's like very, very playful. I loved so many different facts from this, including the footsteps thing. And there are also so many layers of sound happening at the same time. It makes you focus on some more important elements that they want you to hear. So I absolutely love this. But then there are other moments where you don't necessarily see it or the footsteps are an important sound to making you feel that thrill or intensity. So they do add it back in. And that to me is so interesting of these moments figuring out when to or when not to or what to feature and what to put into the background. And another example of sound being important or really the absence of sound was capturing the negative sound when he jumps off the cliff on the motorcycle. So you really get keyed into the sounds of the air and the wind and waiting for him to land. So I loved, again, the differences in those aspects. But the supervising sound editor, James Mather, worked on this and Top Gun Maverick at the same time. We talked about Top Gun so much last year in these technical categories. It really was the one to beat for all of them. And the fact that he was working on those two different films simultaneously is actually really cool. Because you're working in planes, but then here you are in a totally different environment, like on location in Italy at these parties or whether you're working on a train or not. That's another thing that we can talk about in visual effects is how everything looks so good, but they really weren't doing these life defying stunts like they look in the movie. So to make all of that happen and look so real is really, really fascinating, but there's a lot to love here in this movie. I think it totally works. 
Our next nominee we have is Oppenheimer. The team here, we have Willie Burton. This is his eighth nomination. He has two wins in the category. Richard King. This is also his eighth nomination, and he has four prior wins in the category. Gary A. Rizzo. This is his sixth nomination. He also has two wins in the category. And Kevin O'Connell, who has 22 nominations and one win. What do you think of the sound work in Oppenheimer? The sound work here is so important because, again, we have that negative sound. We have these really loud sounds as well. And Nolan is another director that doesn't re-record actors in post. He really only likes to use live performances because they feel more authentic. So I think that comes into play when, you know, we have all of these intense moments either leading up to the big Trinity test scene or later on in the courtroom sequences. But someone from the team said that sound is suspense. So I really like how they play with that and how things can transition from sounding one way into something completely different. Like when we're at the victory speech and Oppenheimer is giving his speech to this crowd, we hear them clapping and we also hear their feet stomping. And it really transforms into this thunderous marching sound that flashes with the horrific scenes of these scorched bodies. So it's triumphant in one sense and then completely devastating in the next. So I think playing with that duality throughout the movie, this three hour long movie is really impressive. What did you think of the sound work? Yeah, that's the scene I think of when I think of the sound in the movie, really, those feet stomping and how chilling that is and how it goes from like being this moment of excitement to him realizing what he's done effectively. And I love how the sound is used there to create that moment and that feeling that sticks with you. I also think that the Trinity test sequence is really incredible because it's so surprising. At least I was surprised watching it because I think you expect the sound to come in at a certain moment and it doesn't. It's a delayed response and that really, I don't know, it takes your breath away when you're watching it. And another fact that I learned that I thought was just really interesting as someone who likes movies about people talking in rooms, I will use that phrase again later, but the scenes when we're in the Senate chambers with Strauss or when Oppenheimer's being interrogated and you have a lot of dialogue at the same time or you're playing with a lot of actors' dialogue, the team planted wired microphones to record all of the actors' dialogue and also had other mics in the room to record the sound of the room. So they had a lot of different choices for Nolan, who, like you mentioned, doesn't like to use any ADR whatsoever. And like that's part of the reason I think that people will talk about the sound mixing in Nolan's movies and might criticize that, but I actually feel like him wanting to capture like the sounds of the room or the sounds of the actors actually as they are in that moment makes the story feel in the moment in the movie feel more authentic. And our final nominee, we have the zone of interest, the team here, Tarn Willers and Johnny Byrne. It is both of their first nominations. So what did you think of the sound work here? What did you like specifically? Oh God, where to begin? (laughs) Um, so when I saw The Zone of Interest for the first time, Jonathan Glazer did a Q&A afterwards, and I took copious notes 
because I was just like in awe of this movie and I just needed to know everything about it. The thing that he said that really stood out to me was that he created two movies, one that you watch and one that you hear. So in thinking about that, the sound work in the movie is its own film altogether. And he... In making this film, you know, Johnny Byrne is a key collaborator of his. They've worked together for years on short films, on Under the Skin, and a number of projects. And I think they just speak the same language. And one of the things that I found like really interesting about Johnny Byrne is that he created his own library of historic sounds from the time. He looked into so many historic records. He interviewed survivors. He read anything that he could find that referenced sound. So for instance, he mentioned that there was a roll call with the bugle. So he could think about that sound, how you could hear the electric fence. He would think about that sound. And I think that the way that they play with the sounds of nature makes it even more chilling. Like you'll hear the birds or the sound of that river and how everything just feels almost like natural, but then unnatural at the same time. And one of the things that Glazer and Byrne do that just, I I remember watching when I saw the movie, now I've seen it just twice. I don't know if I can do a third time, but there's a moment when you hear a child scream And you're, for a moment, you're like, oh, is this, like, from a kid playing in the backyard? Or is this a scream from beyond the camp wall? Mm -hmm. So it really tricks you. And that's why this movie has stayed with me for so long. It really is the sound Mm -hmm. of the movie. There are certain sounds I just can't get rid of. Yeah, I love the sound work here. That library you're talking about ended up being this 600-page research document that he compiled on his own for a single film, which is just totally insane. And Johnny and Jonathan, they both said there were two films here. Film two should not inform film one, which is similar to what I had mentioned with Poor Things and Lanthimos. But I think that idea of crafting a movie in that way is just so fascinating because it feels so disjointed. They didn't want the sound to influence the actors at all. So they basically added these sounds after the edit of the film was finished, which makes it seem like acting in a movie like this. I don't know. That experience is just so different from what we see on screen. So much less harrowing than what we are seeing as a viewer. But it also creates this dissonance between how the Haas family lived and what we hear of the murders being perpetrated. So it's making them uneven, but it's also showing how frighteningly ordinary, which is what Glazer described this family as really how they are as people. And it's disgusting and gross, but it makes you feel so many things as you're watching this movie unfold. What would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote is for society of the snow one category that I thought maybe it would get into, or at least for the shortlist, because we saw it show up in so many others. It has one of the most gruesome crash sequences I've ever seen. But I think, you know, the sound work from that scene or just throughout the movie itself is really fascinating. They're isolated in the Andes Mountains and 
I think how they play with sound, these intimate sounds from the plane, plus those of nature and just this vast mountaintop that they're stuck on is really fascinating. And it makes you feel so many things, kind of like we talked about with these other nominees, when you maybe wouldn't expect it or in other moments to make them feel like this speck, this needle in a haystack, and that they will never get found. So yeah, I like the the sound in that. It's a difficult movie, but I think the sound work is really impressive. What would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote would be for The Killer, the David Venture movie. I love the sound work in this movie. And when I saw it, I kept thinking, oh, this would be such a great sound nominee this year. And sadly, it's not here. I just, I think about how they play with point of view and how we hear voiceover and how that works when we're inside of the character's head versus when we're not in the character's head. And specifically how they play with the music from the Smiths that he listens to. It's honestly kind of devilish. Like I mentioned on our review of it, they know we want to hear the full song, but they take you in and out of it just as the character would and as the perspective shifts. And I think that's just a brilliant detail of the movie. And who do you think should win? I think the Zone of Interest should win. I think it's our most unique nominee we have. Something that we wouldn't have expected, not only just showing up in this category, but sound work in general. It was really inventive. It was very authentic, as you said, with the compilation of sounds, of real sounds that you know he looked at in creating the film. And just one more thing that, you know, they added to is that they went to the Paris riots last year and recorded sounds of shouts and screams and used that in the film. So it's not only a real movie about history, but it's using real sounds from history in the movie to tell a different kind of awful story. Yeah, I completely agree. The zone of interest would also be my winner here because we mentioned Radiohead earlier. I'm also going to mention Radiohead here because Jonathan Glazer directed Radiohead music videos earlier in his career, including Karma Police. And I love love all of those little connections. But I think that his direction of music videos also speaks to his understanding of score and sound and how all of those things affect the story that you're telling and ultimately work as another story that exists within the film. So... Yeah, I think this is one of the greatest below-the-line nominations we've ever covered on a Contender series. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And it won't win, I don't think, but it should. Okay, so our next category, we have film editing. Our guild and precursor, we have the American Cinema Editor's Eddie Awards. That ceremony is on March 3rd. We just got our nominations last week, and all the Oscar nominees are included within their different categories. So our nominees we have here are Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. Our first nominee, Anatomy of a Fall, we have Laurent Seneschal. This is their first nomination. What do you think of Anatomy of a Fall's editing? I loved the editing immediately when I saw the movie. You know, it's such an important component to the film itself. And I think it's really the most technical collaboration we have with Soundwork this year and how the characters narrate the action that is then cut to, you know, when we're talking about 
the son's conversation with the dad in the car or by cutting to emphasize the absence of seeing like in the courtroom fight recording scene. So I love really just the editing throughout and and reading about Trier's work with the editing and her collaboration with Seneschal. She really left more to faith than I would have expected. You know, using accidents and camera work to add new perspectives or letting the actors guide the process by, you know, feeling out how these takes felt when they were filming. It reminded me of my thoughts on Mass, which I won't repeat, but, you know, she really looked for new inventive ways to film these stationary sets that they were in for long periods of time, but she still wanted to show in new ways. So I really like that. What did you think of Seneschal's work? I love this nomination and I'm so happy that it happened because I think that the editing is why this movie works in the way that it does. I mean, you could say that about any movie, obviously, but I think specifically with how this movie plays with point of view and the shifting time, I think the way that we see Daniel's growth in the movie and the passage of time is really smart and just adds this feeling of uncertainty I also think that the use of sound and how sound and editing and why we pair these two categories on Contenders episodes, there is a lot of overlap typically. And the way that the sound is used in this movie is so smart. How they use that sound both in its pre-existing scene, like that fight between Sandra and Samuel, and then play that in the courtroom. I think it's why this movie has stuck with so many people and also how they use music. That version of PIMP and how it's used and how they play with that throughout is so smart. So I love the editing here. And we also just have to talk about the editor being, you know, a a key decision maker and working here with Trier. We had a scene that was cut from the movie that we just found out about, (laughs) which I think would have made this a different movie. (laughs) But there apparently, according to Sandra Huller, there was a sex scene between her character and the lawyer, the Swan Arlo character, the hot lawyer everyone talks about, that was cut from the movie that she described as so 80s and dull. (laughs) So again, I know that's like not what we should be thinking of for like what makes a good editor, but choices. Mm -hmm. I think they made the right choice there. Yeah, I think it changes the entirety of the movie and the ending and how we feel about her and the lawyer. I think part of the movie works so well because there is this sexual tension, but nothing happens. And it does really play with her innocence. And if she's manipulating him, if they have a scene like that. So I'm really, really glad they didn't. They're the types of characters who I think have sexual tension with anyone. So it it kind of, I think it works to cut something like that from the movie and leave it a bit more mysterious. Exactly, yeah. I am curious, though, I have to say. Okay, our next nominee, we have The Holdovers and the editor, Kevin Tent. This is his second nomination. What do you think of the work in The Holdovers? As a fan of 70s cinema, I love the work in The Holdovers. The dissolves. It's so funny. I read an interview with Kevin Tent, and he was talking about how a lot of people don't like dissolves, and... How he kept thinking when he was watching this and Sideways, like, oh, we could have cut back on a few of them. I love the dissolves and think they work so well here in this nostalgic 70s feel. I think it's it's a wistful, warm movie. And 
looking at films like The Last Detail and that dissolve, there's a dissolve in that specifically that Tent really looked at and wanted to replicate here. I just think it works all around. I also think the pace of this movie is really good. I know that Alexander Payne doesn't want to describe this movie as cozy, but I personally do find it to be cozy and I just always want to throw it on because there's something about it that just, it doesn't feel rushed. Like I like the long takes. I like how much time we spend with certain characters or on certain details and it doesn't feel... Yeah, it doesn't feel rushed. I think it feels right. And I think that really informs the emotions and the way that you feel about these characters. And the last thing I want to point out about Kevin Tent is that his favorite movie is All That Jazz, which is one of our favorite movies, especially when it comes to editing. Alan Heim, his win there is just one of the best ever. But I know you love The Holdovers. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the editing? Well, along with his favorite movies, I wanted to mention these because I know you love them all. Also, Chinatown and Paper Moon on that list. I know. It was like looking in the mirror, really, <laughs> like looking at my own notebook. <laughs> I also loved reading that article about the dissolves. There's an entire feature in the New York Times about the dissolve cuts and how Payne and Tent use them. So I recommend reading that. Payne calls the dissolve cuts poetic and melancholy and that's exactly what he shows in this movie i have really too much to mention about it so the one thing that i really loved is kevin in another interview talked about condensing and altering time to inform the pacing and there's one sequence in particular is when angus is parading around campus at night you know he goes and eats ice cream he steals the keys and we cut to the next morning when he's in the church meditating on Curtis's picture. So that entire sequence was pretty funny. You know, you're laughing as an audience, seeing him have this freedom. And then we see him staring at this picture in the church and Mary walks in. And there's this realization, I think, of them looking at each other that is really brilliant and beautiful and melancholy in itself. And you know, the scene of the church was actually elsewhere in the movie, and they moved it here to have a stronger emotional impact and to really shock the audience's senses and perception of this moment. So they make it sound like a hard cut, but it is really soft. So I think their ability to play with those feelings and how we really perceive editing in a movie is just really brilliant and the cornerstone of what editing is to filmmaking. So it's, I really, really love it. I'm glad it showed up here. Me too. Our next nominee, we have Thelma Schoonmaker for Killers of the Flower Moon, our greatest living editor, the queen of editing. She has three wins, which is a record in the category. She won for Raging Bull, The Departed, and The Aviator. And this is her ninth nomination she has been working with Scorsese for a very long time. She answered an ad in the paper where he was looking for an editor for a student film. She first worked with him on Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is his earliest feature. And she has worked with him on every single film since Raging Bull, which came out in 1980. So they have had a very special, very long career. But what did you think of her work in Killers of the Flower Moon? I think her work is beautiful. For a three and a half hour movie that doesn't feel like it, it's phenomenal work. And this is usual for their collaboration, but 
they had 12 different edits of the film, which I, I can't even fathom. <laughs> it's truly remarkable. But she takes notes from Marty and notes that he gives to different people on the crew and then uses that to cut and recut and recut the film. But the big thing that they changed while they were making the movie and editing the film was to make the love story so central. So I think to really change the essence of a movie by changing the core story, also based on the adaptation, and the story of the FBI is just so special. It shows how much they care about the audience's perception and what we got out of the film. And I think also this love story shows in a different sense, you know, what was happening to the Osage people. It's brilliant and was so smart for Thelma and Marty to do. What did you think? I mean, I just, I think she's the best, especially her late career work with Scorsese. They are just on the same page. Like they're, you just know they're totally in sync. They always have been throughout their careers, but I think that here in this late period work, like we think of Silence, we think of The Irishman, we think of Killers of the Flower Moon, there is a different kind of heavy feel to these movies where there is violence, but it's not glamorized. You have to think about it much differently than you did like The Wolf of Wall Street or The Departed or Goodfellas. And she just has such a good handle on how to make his films violent. And there's that great quote about how she's the one where she says that she's the one who makes them violent. And I think that, you know, this movie itself, it's of the movies that we have this year that focus on genocide or atrocity or these horrible acts of violence. We have Oppenheimer, The Zone of Interest, and Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon is the film that shows the violence. We see how it unfolds on screen in front of us. And I think that the way that she and Scorsese do that is very bold. And the way that she describes it is as confrontational storytelling you don't cut away from something you hold the shot and you make the audience feel what's there on screen and that makes things so much more terrifying and it makes you have to wrestle with the actions of the perpetrators and in looking at what the Osage go through so when we see this again unflinching violence she I think really understands the power in that and in how long to show something. I also think that there are really beautiful parallels in the movie. I always love like parallel storytelling and when certain images, you can clock them and then see them later. I loved what Jane Campion did with this in The Power of the Dog. And I think that Scoodmaker and Scorsese do it here as well that connect different events and moments and characters through cross-cutting. And these juxtapositions make the story that much stronger our next nominee is jennifer lame working on oppenheimer this is her first nomination what did you think of her work here i love her work here i think it's in reading more about her and learning more about her as an editor it was interesting to learn through this piece in the la times of when she got the job for tenant when she got that call how she was so surprised because to her it didn't make any sense She started out working for someone who had been an apprentice for Woody Allen and Sidney Lumet. She had edited Noah Baumbach movies like Marriage Story. Her specialty is people talking in rooms. 
So Tenet didn't really make sense for her, and she was really surprised by that. But then he called her with Oppenheimer and said, I'm working on a script with people in rooms talking. And she was she realized that she had to do it. And I think that the brilliance of her work here really is in how balanced this story feels. If we think about like charting this film across three hours, you have enough introduction and exposition around the central character in the first hour that makes you care enough about him and understand him in a way that supports the story in the second portion and the third. In the second part, you have really dynamic work along with the sound team in making you feel this like propulsion towards the building of the bomb and you understand like this, you know, the race and the the pressure that the scientists feel. And then when we get to the third hour, it's this like JFK style political drama that is my favorite hour of the movie. And they all flow together seamlessly. It doesn't feel like three different movies. And how she plays with the fission and fusion themes and weaving together different timelines and perspectives. It is such a tall order and a mammoth task. And I think she pulled it off so smoothly. I mean, there's a reason why people have seen a three-hour movie dozens of times and why it's made almost a billion dollars. And it doesn't feel like it's three hours. And I think she's a huge part of that. Yeah, I love her work here. The film was initially three and a half hours and they had to cut a half hour from a movie that not only had a dense source material, the book that it came from, but keeping that pacing as they were editing the film down is just a hard task to do. And she does it so well. And then pile on Nolan and how he plays with time in all of his movies and, you know, either going back and forth, cutting between different time periods or just the structure of the film itself, really having these three acts that define it, defining Oppenheimer, and then introducing, developing other characters and showing their struggles too. She's doing so much, but yeah, it's something that you want to go back to. And she had just signed on to Wakanda Forever before she got the call from Nolan. So she really only had a month to edit this entire film. She had some of her assistant editors working along with her and for her while she was away. And then when she got on, I mean, imagine having to cut a three-hour movie in a month. Sounds like a monumental task. So props to her. (laughs) It's Yeah, just phenomenal, phenomenal work on her part. Our last nominee here, we have Poor Things. Our editor is Yorgos Mavrosaridis. This is his second nomination. He was previously nominated for The Favorite. What did you think of the editing in Poor Things? I think the editing is not really something you notice. And I think that works for and against it in a sense. I mean, you shouldn't really notice the editing. That's what a lot of editors say. But I think with the collaboration, I'll just call them the Yorgoses, is really interesting. You know, the editor Yorgos doesn't like to be on set. He feels like it influences his vision with the environment and shooting conditions. So he doesn't go to set, which is really interesting. But one thing I liked is that he said the edit is not like the script. So again, kind of like the sound, it's this new layer of telling the story and that what you see on the page is not what you see in that final version. So it's really playing with who these characters are at the core, what the story means and showing that in a different way through editing. And so I like how 
it really feels like this new experience just through, you know, finishing the film once they get the dailies, once they have everything, and then they cut it, putting it together in a way that feels completely new is really, really interesting. What did you think of the editing here? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with you. I think that like you don't you don't notice it, which is not like a bad thing by any means, but you don't I don't know, for me, the editing, I felt like it felt a little bit unbalanced. Like certain sections by the time we get to them feel like we're either spending too much time there or not enough time there. I also don't need chapter titles in my film. I think that in Oppenheimer at the beginning it makes sense because it establishes this core tenant of the film, this fission and fusion, but here like having these title cards taking us to different cities as parts of her journey, that's just not something I need and actually I think makes the film slow down and lose a lot of its momentum that it has. I think in particular by the time we get to the end, it just it feels a bit overlong just in terms of the pace of the film and how it feels. I agree with you though. I like how it's interesting like Yorgos the director, Lanthimos. The the process that he has with all of his collaborators is very similar. It seems like he doesn't want to show them too much. He likes each person that he's working with to very much have their own process in figuring out the cut or figuring out the score or what the costume should look like. And then coming together at a particular time and place. I actually think that one of the strongest things about the editing here is the sound work. I think there are really creative sounds in the movie. Johnny Byrne, also of the Zone of Interest, did the sound here. In Lanthimos, he doesn't like ADR either. So I think they had to work really creatively to capture the sounds of the movie and the dialogue and I think that they they did a great job, and that's some of the best work in the movie. Okay, and wrapping up the category, what would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote would be for John Wick, Chapter 4. I think that the editing of the movie gives it this dynamic quality. That movie moves, and that's a movie that has different set pieces. You're traveling to different locations, but the amount of time that you spend in each one feels perfectly appropriate and propels you to the next place where he's going. And like when I just think about how the fight scenes are edited, the editor of the movie, Nathan Orloff, he didn't have experience with action movies. And that was actually what drew the director, Chad Stahelski, to him was that he was going to be thinking about how to cut and choreograph these scenes in the film in a new way before. He wasn't going to rely on previous work on action movies or, again, like preconceived notions that he might have had about what they would look like. And it it really pays off. I think that the action sequences, they, and I'm not an action movie person, they kept my attention at all times. I was on the edge of my seat and I loved this movie. I thought it was great. So I would say John Wick Chapter 4. I love that pick. I would go with the movie that was ineligible, which I think is wrong, but my answer here is Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. It's fine in this case, (laughs) I will say. (laughs) I think the work here and how it plays in a movie version of a concert performance, not only using footage between performances to shock the audience, similar to like what they did in Homecoming and her Coachella performance, but in editing in the process, the making of the concert, putting together all the elements and then going to her life and going back to where she was from and 
there are just so many different stories happening, different elements that come together so well. Again, in a movie that is nearly three hours, they pack so much in, but all of it plays an important purpose and has a really big effect on the viewer. They had 19 editors work on this project, which phenomenal. I mean, you can tell that there's a lot of work going into it. So yeah, I love this. I I wish it could have been nominated or appreciated by the Academy. I absolutely love that pick. And of the five nominees, what do you think should win? I think Anatomy of a Fall should win. I think the work here, it makes you think of the story in a completely different way. And it makes you think of Sandra, the character, differently based on the editing itself. So I think it's phenomenal in the construction and how it plays in the movie. And it's not necessarily a distracting thing of what we were talking about earlier. It adds another layer, another complexity to her and the situation that is just really genius for what Trier is doing with her story. What do you think should win? I think that Jennifer Lame should win for Oppenheimer. I think just putting together that three-hour movie in the way that she did, thinking of each of those hours as their own sorts of films in a way, but how they all interact perfectly with each other and just flow seamlessly. I also think, you know, going from color to black and white, we also didn't even talk about how she edited it and then would send her work on so then the film could be cut for the IMAX footage, like all the technology that she was working with and weaving together these two distinct stories into one film. Our last category that we'll talk about today is visual effects. Our guilds and precursors here, we have the Visual Effects Society. Their ceremony is on February 21st. All of our Oscar nominees were nominated at VES. The creator had seven category nominations. Godzilla Minus One had one nomination. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 had six. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 had one. And Napoleon had two. So our first nominee, the creator, the team we have here, Jay Cooper, Ian Comley, and Andrew Roberts, they're all first-time nominees. And then Neil Corbold, who we'll mention again, has two wins, and this is his sixth nomination. So what did you think of the visual effects here? So the visual effects for the creator, I actually really like the work here. Again, despite not loving the movie, I think that the visual effects are really impressive. There are over 1,600 VFX shots in the movie. The work was done by multiple VFX houses, but I thought that the work in the creator was in particular, I think, in how they used existing cities and then added additional structures within those cities to give it this more futuristic feel. That's what I noticed when I was watching the movie. So, for example, they'll take principal photography of a city like Bangkok and then put in these really futuristic buildings and aircrafts and pieces like that in the shot so that you can see that we're in right a different version of that city or a different environment. And I also think that one of the things that stands out in terms of visual effects are what these AI creations called simulants look like. The ways that their brains and like the ears and the back of the neck look, I thought was really creative and is fully visual effects. 
So they the way that they add things to the characters' faces, to the head, to make them look like another entity from the future that is part AI, part human, I thought was really beautiful work. Yeah, and those simulants head designs, they were inspired by 80s Sony and Nintendo characters, so I liked hearing that. Overall, I do like the work here. All of the visual effects were done in post. They did not use green screens or sound stages. They were on location, like I mentioned earlier, and I liked that they worked with newer AI tech and cameras that make it feel way more real. Part of this was due to the conditions of the story. You know, they're working with a child actor as one of the main characters, and like she couldn't be there all the time. They had to really work around her and just regulations with working with child actors. But in doing so, they made it feel so much more real. And I think that's how all visual effects movies should be. They made her feel more comfortable, but I think the designs work with the environment in that sense so much better than if they were on a green screen and everything was fabricated later. So yeah, I like the work here. Yeah. And I do, I want to add another thing too about the USS Nomad, the space station. I love that they were inspired by birds of prey because when you look at it, you can tell it looks familiar, but it doesn't look like things you would necessarily see in other sci-fi movies. It looks like pretty original in its design, and I thought that that was a really interesting inspiration for it. Our next nominee, we have Godzilla Minus One, the team here. They are all first-time nominees. Takashi Yamazaki, Kyoko Shibuya, Masaki Takahashi, and Tatsuji Nojima. I love Godzilla Minus One. But what did you think of the visual effects? I think the visual effects here are phenomenal. I mean, they worked on a $15 million budget, which is minuscule compared to some of the other movies we'll talk about here. There were 610 total visual effects shots with only 35 artists working on this in this department. And a fact I really liked is that Takashi Yamazaki, who's the director, is nominated for the work here amongst the visual effects team. And if the movie wins, he will be the first director in the category to win since Stanley Kubrick for 2001 in 1968. I knew you were going to cite this fact. I wrote it down, but I just knew that you would read it. Yeah. But one fact that I really love is that Yamazaki was so impressed by Tatsuji Nojima, a compositing artist. He had this idea about submerging Godzilla. And they rewrote the entire climax so that they could do this because of Nojima's ability to work with water and manipulate water in different ways, either adding color or texture, foam layers, and then having a difference in deep sea versus up on the surface where they work a lot of the film. So again, the visual effects informing the story is not typical, but I loved that they could, through the artistry, accomplish something different than what they initially thought they could. Yeah, I love the visual effects in this movie. And again, the fact that 35 artists pulled this off is so impressive. I really like the classic monster or disaster movie feel that this has. And I think that makes sense because director, he mentioned that he's a big fan of the 1954 Godzilla. And he wanted to also draw a parallel to that film and to how that was a response to nuclear warfare. 
and connect that to today and society's concerns and fears in our environment now. And I agree with you. I love the use of Godzilla in the water. I loved the part when he bites the train car too. I felt like that was such a good scene. But yeah, I just, I loved this movie a lot. I was so surprised by it. And it's because it reminded me of those classic monster movies and not something Mm -hmm. that had just like thousands of visual effect shots that we see today, like the next movie. Yeah, our next nominee in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the team here, Stephanie Soretti, this is our third nomination, Guy Williams, his fourth nomination, and Alexis Wajbrot and Theo Bialek, who are both first-time nominees. What did you think of the visual effects here? I think that this is definitely a case of, like, most visual effects, and that doesn't entirely work for me. I will say that I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is one of the best Marvel movies that has come out recently, which might shock you because I know how you felt about it and you'll get to it, but it's way better than something like Thor Love and Thunder. Um, But it, it does that kind of thing that Thor Love and Thunder does, which it has this very cheap little kid humor and then expects you to suddenly feel moved by whatever emotional beats they're throwing your way. And that does not work for me at all the humor of these movies is just not my thing Mm -hmm. so as a film i'm very hot and cold on it i think certain things work i enjoy rocket raccoon as a character voiced by bradley cooper so rocket raccoon in the movie has a backstory and the visual effects team studied baby raccoons for this i do find the story in the movie to be particularly cruel and i don't really enjoy it but i think that the animals are very cute and I think that you can tell that they studied the movements of real animals here to inform the design. There's also a talking dog named Cosmo, voiced by Maria Bakalova, and they studied golden retrievers. And you know I've grown up with golden retrievers, so and you have too, so I like that they studied goldens for that. But that's all I can really add here. Yeah, I wanted to mention that fact because I would never have expected the Borat sequel to have a connection to Guardians 3, but... Yeah, they had a Golden Retriever Slate, one of the producer's dogs, on set, which inspired this character. Oh, Slate. Honestly, a cute name for a dog, too. It's really cute. (laughs) I feel the same about the movie in general. The visual effects, there were over 3,000 visual effects shots, and they worked in post on this film for 15 months. So this is very much like the most we've seen today of all the numbers we have mentioned or will mention this is it i think the bare bones of the story you know having this darker tale about rocket's backstory kind of surprised me it actually was pretty captivating but what they added in terms of script really took away from that i think you could have taken away 45 minutes easily to keep it focused but i think adding that comedy is what the viewers like those who like the marvel universe but Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot. There is a really cool two minute long take of the no sleep till Brooklyn action sequence. But to me, the camera was a bit nauseating. And this one take, quote unquote, is actually 18 separate shots cut together digitally to make it look like it is one. So I think just most impressive is the choreography and collaboration between the visual effects, the blocking of the actors, the direction, everything that's happening with so many either characters present acting or ones that are added later visually. 
And this was our other Radiohead movie. It was, starting with Creep, which is overused, and I don't know if I really love it here, but I did love it in The Social Network, <laughs> or the trailer. I can't even remember. Our next nominee, we have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Our team here, we have Alex Vudka. This is their first nomination. Simone Coco, this is their first nomination. Jeff Sutherland, this is his first nomination. And Neil Corbold, this is his seventh nomination. So we've already heard the name Neil Corbold today, and we might hear it again. But what did you think of the visual effects in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? I think the effects here are so impressive. It makes them look at times like they're fighting on top of a train or rushing through a tunnel or about to fall off of a bridge and they're just not there at all which is so fascinating to see how real it looks i love that you know with this train sequence they're calling back to buster keaton's the general there's some really great videos of this on youtube that i recommend checking out but tom doing all of his stunts whether they're in front of a green screen or not i think it is impressive for any actor to do this but there are so many different scenes that showcase the visual effects. They have the sandstorm pretty early on, the bridge explosion, the runaway train, the room car chase, which I love. 99% of that was shot on location with digital touch-ups later on or adding in traffic. And then you have the airport chase where he's like running on top of the roof. And that entire luggage area was not there. It's all green screen and everything just looks real like they're working in these real places that you shut down locations to be there and that's just not the case at all it blew my mind yeah the those were two of my facts too the luggage being added in later because that's such a key moment like it's a very tense moment in the movie and the scene earlier with the car chase incorporating those streets like you mentioned but also something like the spanish steps which like they can't shoot on that obviously like being able to then fill in those additional details with cg environments i think is like you said really impressive so great work all around our next nominee napoleon the team here charlie henley this is his second nomination luke ewan martin finouillet this is his first nomination simon coco this is their second nomination and neil corbold his eighth nomination so he's been mentioned three times in this category phenomenal what did you think of the work in napoleon it's so funny because napoleon was one of those movies that we kept talking about like will it appear you always said that it would and it did i think that the biggest thing for me with napoleon is that this film tackles so much time really like across napoleon's life and a huge portion of that, of course, because it's a Ridley Scott movie, are all of these different battles. So, for example, we have Waterloo, which is, I think, the most iconic of all of the Napoleon battles. But how visual effects are used across those, I think that's where the work here really stands out. Because they're all in incredibly different environments, too, when it comes to weather, when it comes to what time of year it was, how many soldiers they would have. So a lot of it really is thinking creatively about how crowded they would want certain environments to look and feel. And one of the things that they did for these battle sequences is that they would 
rely on things that they captured for one particular battle scene and they would bring that into another. So they would scan the horses, they would scan the weapons, and they would use that data to build matching CG pieces that would go into other battles that they would have. So that, I think, is is a really creative way to do it um, with this advancing technology that they have. And I have to say, I mean, every battle in Napoleon looks really good. Like, there are some moments that I prefer to others, but I think overall the battles are the highlights of the film and the visual effects are a really, really big part of that. And a lot of it is just kind of like we mentioned, just adding little pieces digitally. So making the ships look much bigger and much more historically accurate or putting additional horses on the battlefield, making this really complicated, icy, underwater battle at Austerlitz come to be. It's also another part of the film where the visual effects really shine. Yeah, I definitely appreciated them more having done research, looking up what they did, because there is so much here from the battle sequences to rebuilding cities, homes, estates, landscapes. It's really cool to see. Again, check out videos on YouTube of this. But one fact that I really liked, it's not trying to be a dig, but It's funny thinking back, and you'll get the reference here, but they had to add, because of safety regulations, 1,200 digital candle flames instead of using real ones. So they used LED bulbs that were enhanced later individually to look like real fire, real candles. And this made me think of Barry Lyndon and the cinematography there and how they used real candles, and that is the lighting But here, having the visual effects inform the lighting is actually pretty cool. It is cool, but Stanley Kubrick would never. Napoleon is the poor man's Barry Lyndon, and (laughs) that scene when he first meets Josephine, we're finally getting to talk about Napoleon and (laughs) what we liked and didn't like about it. That scene when he first meets Josephine is such an uncomfortable Barry Lyndon knockoff. Oh my god, it's all I could think of in that moment. I was like, Kubrick is rolling over in his grave right now as Joaquin Phoenix walks up to Vanessa Kirby and has absolutely zero game, yet seduces her anyway with the fake candles. So wrapping up here, what would your write-in vote be? So there were a number of options here for visual effects. I wanted to go with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse because I think the VFX work there is amazing and it should have been nominated but I had to be true to my heart here and go with the moment of visual effects that I will remember most when I think of 2023 in movie going and that involves an iconic structure known as the Taj Mahal specifically what the Taj Mahal looks like (laughs) underwater after you've been swimming for hours and hours and hours and that is Nyad. Nyad is my write-in for visual effects And it's more than just the Taj Mahal. They added, you know, effects to Annette Bening's face underwater. They studied her movements and replicated that. But mostly, I mean, it is creating those lights and the colorful Taj Mahal underwater that I wanted to include here. The stars, the jellyfish, they must have added those. Yeah, the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. It is fun. Oh, I can't wait to rewatch Nyad. Oh, my God. My write-in vote is for John Wick Chapter 4, 
kind of repeating some of what you said last category, I think the work here is just, again, for one of the best action movies we got last year, visually, there's so much happening. They have multiple long takes, and that speaks to the choreography and what the actors are doing, but having to keep the visual effects up in those moments and sustain them for so long is fascinating. Videos online, check them out. But I think the long takes here make the two-minute oneer in Guardians look more minute in comparison. We have the Arc de Triomphe sequence, the Paris House top shot, Berlin nightclub, the Osaka Continental, all of those battles, the Sacre Coeur, and so many more. But as I watched them digitally enhance the movie, again, I thought like, oh, they were in Paris shooting and they must have locked down certain parts of the city. They were not at the Arc de Triomphe at all during this filming, which is insane that not only they added traffic, but they added monuments and buildings and cars. And then on top of that, you're shooting while all of that is happening as well. And what do you think should win? This is going to be really shocking, but I think Mission Impossible should win. I think for a movie that really captured audiences this year, you know, being one of the best sequels to a franchise. Tom Cruise, again, you know, he was just there with Top Gun last year, but going above and beyond with jumping off of a cliff is absolutely insanity. And it's a movie that I would rewatch because of the visual effects. I think they're fantastic. What do you think should win? I'm going to go with Godzilla Minus One, which is my favorite movie of the nominees. And I just love their their underdog story, you know, only having 35 visual effects artists working on the movie, the way that they bring their little Godzillas to awards shows and they put them on the table to watch the announcement. Please go watch their reaction to the announcement of the nominees. It is so great. But I think that the work they do here on Godzilla and creating him and in how he moves underwater and moves through the city, like it is scary. And I just, I love the creature design and the work here. So I have to go with Godzilla minus one. I love that one too. Well, we made it through our first contenders episode. I know it was long. There's a lot to break down with these, but it definitely helps in thinking about the nominees and we didn't prognosticate at all today. We won't be doing those during these episodes. We will do that after once we are closer to the Oscars and say, what do we think will win? So we'll get to that eventually, but I think just appreciating them for what they are is important. And next time on our next Contenders episode, we'll be doing more below-the-line categories with makeup and hairstyling, costume design, production design, and cinematography. Yeah, it was so great to kick off our Contender series today and really appreciate this crop of nominees this year. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde, where we have bonus content. And you can check out updated predictions on our website, oscarwilde.squarespace.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.